Well, we can turn back to the passage we read there um, in the book of Ephesians and chapter 5, 22 to 6, verse 9. I want us to think about the theme of um, happy households. Obviously, there's a lot of material here and... um, There have been different ways of describing how a person explores a passage. Sometimes it's like being like um, somebody digging for treasure. And that is just one way of doing it. Another way is what's called a kind of helicopter viewpoint. That you just kind of fly above it and spot whatever things are of interest. So um, my attempt tonight is going to be a bit like a helicopter, but whether it ends up like that or not, who can say. But um, I just want to think about um, the theme of happy households. Um, The division that's here of um, wives and husbands and children and parents and masters and slaves well that was the household in the time the New Testament was written and uh, the, um, it was a common way of society that people just did that and um, we can for example if we read about the the um, the church in Philippi, uh, how it started, well, it basically started with households. And um, we're told that the household of Lydia um, believed. And we're also told that the household of the Philippian jailer believed. And there's no indication, for example, that uh, Lydia was married but that she had a household and um, she was a businesswoman from Thyatira who had turned up in Philippi, presumably in connection with her business, and, um, but her household came with her. And these people in her household may have been slaves, her servants. The household of the Philippian jailer, well, they're all old enough to make their own responses and it is possible that the jailer was a kind of elevated role. It was normally given to retired soldiers. So the it could be that his household included children and slaves. But anyway, it was a very common way for the church to grow. And Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthians, mentions that as far as he knew, he had only baptized the household of Stephanus. And the household of Stephanus probably included uh, servants as well as um, children. And a description of a deacon is given in First um, Timothy chapter 3 and this description of a deacon is um, there says let a deacon Each deacon be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. So you actually get the three um, levels there, as Paul has in Ephesians here. The the deacon and his wife, their children, and their household. And the household witness was one. If the three didn't fulfill 
their roles, then the household had uh, failed. As far as its uh, witness was concerned. Now, um, there's obviously changes in society, and the obvious change, at least as for our part of the world, is that there's no bond servants. Or at least in theory, there's no bond servants. Because slavery is outlawed. But it's quite possible that there are places where different cultures have come in. And it may be the case that in some of these places, this threefold division would still apply. Now, as um, we know, um, these areas, if we want to apply them in a contemporary sense, are areas where there's lots of problems. Whether it's the one between wives and husbands, or between children and parents, or between employers and employees. They're common issues of problems today. And the fact that um, Paul addresses it kind of points to the fact that they were problem issues back then as well. Now, as we come to this passage, um, we're not really meant to jump in at verse 22. We've just got here because we've gone through the previous verses, but we're, we're not meant to jump in at verse 22 of chapter 5. We have to see what the flow of Paul's argument is. And there's um, three things in his flow that has started from chapter 4 where he's dealing with the practical sides of, the, of his letter. That's Paul's usual method. The first section of his letter deals with doctrinal issues and the second section deals with practical concerns. And in chapters 4 to 6 he, has been, he is dealing with practical matters. But what has he said so far uh, until we get to this verse 22. Well, immediately before verse 22 is verse 21. And in verse 21, he says that submission is to be a mark of everyone. They are to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So everything he says from verse 22 of chapter 5 onwards down to the end of verse 9 of chapter 6 is addressed to people who are submissive. Everyone has to be submissive. So the submissive to Christ and we have to bear that in mind when he talks about other aspects of submission. Everything is said to people who are submissive. Uh, connected to this mutual submission is, well, what is submission an uh, indication of, evidence of? What, does, what can we say about a person who is submissive? And the reason why Paul mentions verse um, 21 and submitting to another out of reverence for Christ is because he's talking about what it's like to be filled with the Spirit. What marks someone who's filled with the Spirit? And uh, we saw last time that they speak to one another about spiritual things, and they um, sing with one another, and they also give thanks to God the Father for everything and they're also submissive. So when Paul, what Paul is writing about in verses 5, 22, uh, down to verse 9 of chapter 6, is people who are filled with the Spirit. And who are filled with the Spirit in domestic circumstances. 
Because he's not really talking about their church life here. He's actually referring to their home life. And um, what's it like to be filled with the Spirit there? But also in addition to him talking about submission and him talking about being filled with the Spirit, in chapters 4 to 6, his main um, concern, as is continually repeated by the illustration that he uses, is that they, his readers are walking somewhere. He keeps saying, walk, walk, walk in love, walk as Christ did, walk in various ways. And when Paul's talking about a walk, He's not talking about a namble out into the countryside. He's, he's talking about a journey. And the, the journey is from somewhere to somewhere. And they are, these readers of his, they are traveling from wherever they were when they were converted. They are traveling from there to heaven. So how do people traveling to heaven who are filled with the Spirit and who are submissive to one another, how do they function? And Paul goes on to tell us in these three areas. And from them, we can get principles that will be suitable for other aspects of life. Now, as we can see, he deals with um, three relationships, wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. And with regard to each of these relationships, he gives one reason, a different reason each time, but he gives one reason why they should do what they're meant to do. And of course, there's, there's something uh, wise in that strategy, isn't there? I mean, our method might be to give a dozen reasons. And we imagine that the more reasons that we give, somehow or other, the, there's more pressure to conform. But um, <clears throat> Paul just gives one reason each time. And we'll see what the reasons are as we go along. But obviously for Paul, the one reason was sufficient. If they grasp this point in the particular relationships that he's speaking about, everything would be fine. So I just want us to go through this and see what Paul um, says. And the first one is um, wives and husbands. I think it's important to stress that Paul's words here indicate that the submission is a willing choice of the wife. It's not something that's imposed upon her by her husband. It's a willing choice of the wife. And what's the reason why they should do it? Why the wife and her husband later on, who both are submissive, I mean, that's the kinds of people he's talking about, who both are submissive to Christ, and who both are filled with the Spirit, and who both are traveling to heaven. What's the reason that he gives for this expression of mutual submission? And the reason he gives is that the wife and the husband picture the church and Christ. And that automatically raises everything to a different level. They don't do it because it may happen to be the cultural norms of the society in which they're in. And they don't do it because it, um, 
some Indians had a bright idea saying this would be the suitable thing to do. They are doing it because whatever they are, whatever day of the week it is, whatever time of day it is, the, the wife depicts the church and the husband depicts Christ. And that never changes. There's, n there's never a moment when that is not the case. So when in our society, if someone meets the, the wife and husband downtown, this should be seen. Whatever they are, the, the attitude uh, was meant by this is obvious. Now, it, it doesn't mean that um, the wife has got a list of items about which she thinks it would be good for her to be submissive in, or that the husband has got a throne somewhere where he thinks it would be good for him to make a few commands. When Paul is talking about submission uh, of, of the wife initially, he's talking about what's her regular lifestyle. It should be so normal that the husband shouldn't even notice it. The only thing that he should notice is if she doesn't do it. But when she is functioning as a spirit-filled person who is walking to heaven, this is normal. It shouldn't stand out. It's just happening. And uh, it's in everything. That's what Paul stresses. Everything, everything is everything. I mean, there's, there's nothing outside of everything. So their lifestyle, from as she engages as someone who is submissive to Christ, she, she as a spirit-filled Christian who is traveling to heaven, submits to her husband. What's her husband meant to do? as a spirit-filled Christian who's traveling to heaven, who's submissive to Christ. Well, as such a person, he lives a sacrificial life. He just doesn't do a sacrifice once a week or even once a day. It's just sacrificial, constantly, always. Jesus, whom the husband represents, didn't just do things occasionally for his people. He did them constantly. And the spirit-filled husband thinks all the time in a sacrificial manner regarding his wife. And even as the, the wife's submission should not be noticed, neither should the husband's sacrificial lifestyle. It's his normal lifestyle. What becomes noticeable is when he doesn't do it. It should just be the norm. It just occurs. And the reason why he is sacrificial and it's what Jesus does is because he's concerned about sanctification. I mean, Jesus is obviously concerned about his church that one day they're going to be spotless without blemish. And that should be the, the husband's focus. And sanctification is not a negative thing. I mean, sanctification is a very positive thing. It's how, how we get beauty back into our lives because we are remade in the image of Christ. And as far as this relationship is concerned, it's their constant role to reflect Christ and the church. If, if they happen to be married. Obviously there's other 
Christians who are not in this category, but uh, if they are in it, they are to reflect this relationship. And that, of course, means, doesn't it? I think it means three things, really. There should be prayer. I mean, the husband should be conscious that he's always meant to to show what Christ is like in his home. And the wife is always meant to show what the church should be like. So there should be lots of prayer for that, shouldn't there? And there, well, sadly, both the husband and the wife will fail at times, and they should just admit it when that happens. And Paul himself gives a hint as to what they should be doing when he gives into detail about what Jesus did on the cross. And I think when he does that, He's saying to them that the way to become this is to think about Jesus. To think about Jesus and what he did. And he mentions several things there about what the Savior did. I don't really want to go into that just now. But Jesus gave himself. So we think about him. And as we think about Jesus, well, it just does something to our thinking processes. If we never think about Jesus, well, how can this be worked out? It's not possible. So that's wives and husbands. Spirit-filled, submissive people walking to heaven. But then secondly, there are uh, children and parents. Now, as um, just look at the description there in verses one to uh, four. Well, there's two obvious um, things right away that stand out. Um, one is, I mean, this letter arrives in Ephesus. And a copy is not sent to every house. Instead, one copy is sent to the church. And it's read in the church. And that's the only place where it would be read. Because how would people in the first century get individual copies of it? It wasn't possible, really. So, as they gather, in church and as I think we said previously on one occasion if just gather anything new today yes there's a letter from Paul and he wants us to read it out and who's going to be present when he reads it out Well, the people who are mentioned here, the husbands and the wives, the parents and the children, the slaves and the masters, they're all going to be there. And of course, it's it's really obvious from this um, description that the children were present. Paul didn't, as it were, put a little footnote in saying, parents, remember this and tell your children when they go home. I mean, children have a right to hear God's word. And Paul here is taking that for granted. He's not thinking it could could be any other way. They should be where God's word has been read. The other detail that stands out is that both the children and the parents are regarded 
has been in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. How do the children come to be in the Lord? I suppose the, the pronoun indicates a connection to baptism because we, not the pronoun, sorry, the preposition indicates a, a connection to baptism. In baptism we're baptized in the name of the Lord. And here the children are in the Lord. And in baptism, there's a certain sense in which they're handed to the Lord. I mean, God gives the children to the parents, obviously, but in baptism, there is a sense in which they are giving the children to the Lord. And it's a reminder to how we regard children in a church setting. They're not the same as other children. They are in the Lord. They've got a connection to Christ that other children don't have. And Paul is just stressing them that for detail here. Now I said earlier that he gives one reason for each of these relationships as to why they should listen to what he's saying. When he's talking about the wives and the husbands, he said it's because the wife depicts the church and the husband depicts Christ. The reason that he gives regarding the children and the parents is the fifth commandment. He points out to them, um, honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may be long in the land. What are we to make of that? Well, just a couple of points. One is, it's a reminder that both children and adults are under God's law, <clears throat> isn't it? Uh, we live in a time where God's law is kind of sidelined and shunted out of the way. And um, we know it's still there, but just like a railway carriage that's no longer used, it's just shunted out of the road. And there is a danger that we forget about divine commandments. And Paul here is indicating that both of them, parents and children, are under God's moral law. And the children are expected to obey the fifth commandment, to honor, to respect their father and mother. And Paul points out that this is the first commandment with a promise. Now, in the Old Testament um, setting, uh, the promise was that they, things would go well with them and that they may live long in the land. What would that have meant in, when that was first said? It's not really, as far as I can see, a promise that you're going to live a long life. Although that's part of it. But that's not the main point of the promise. Uh, the main point of the promise is, <clears throat> well, there was no such thing as emigration in Israel. If you went out of Israel, you were being disobedient or being punished. I mean, that was the whole, whole point. They were taken into Israel because it was a special place. I mean, when um, 
Elimelech left Bethlehem to go and live in the land of Moab. It may have been according to common sense, but it wasn't according to God's instructions. They were told to live in the land. And the reason why they were to live in the land is because that's where the presence of God was found. God was special. God was dwelling in Canaan in a very special way. And obviously, if you were to live long in the land where God was, that is a very special blessing. But the blessing is not primarily you're going to have a long life. It's where you're going to have a long life. A long life in the presence of God. That's what's been held out for these uh, children here. And of course, that's what we've promised to them, isn't it? If we are, what are we, um, what are, sorry, what are parents designing for their children? Well, it's to live in the presence of God, isn't it? That, that wherever they are, geographically, physically, wherever they are, spiritually, they're in the presence of God. And I think that's the point that Paul is making. If they do what God requires, honor their father and mother, for the right reasons, obviously, that they will live in the presence of God throughout their lives. And of course that is a great reward. And we sang about that in Psalm 34. And we'll sing about it more when we come to the end of the service. Now in God's word, there are plenty models for children. And the biggest model is Jesus. And we know about Jesus, don't we? He's a God of heaven. He is the one who is full of power. He is, he knows everything. How did he spend the first, his childhood? But we're told by Luke how he spent his childhood. He went down to Nazareth and was subject to Mary and Joseph. So that means that when Joseph said to Jesus, do this, Jesus did it. When Mary said to him, do something, he did it. It was never the other way around. Although he's a God of heaven. He went down to Nazareth and was subject to them. He submitted himself. Even though he is the sinless one. And even though they were sinners. Jesus, the role model, submitted himself. And there may have been times when their requests, given his knowledge of things, their requests might have been limited in their grasp of what was going on. But he was subject to them. And he's our example. He's not just an example for adults, for grown-ups. He's the example for children. And what better example could they have? There's other examples, of course, in the Bible, too. 
I mean, there's Samuel. When does Samuel start serving the Lord? When he's about three years of age. That's when his mother takes him up to the tabernacle. There's Timothy. What's said about Timothy is, through his father wasn't a Christian, but through Timothy, who was guided by his mother and his grandmother, we're told about him that from a child he knew the scriptures. That's not the nice, easy New Testament Paul is referring to. He's referring to the Old Testament with all its complicated details about sacrifices and all the other things that are there. But he says that from a child he knew the scriptures. And there's others in the Bible as well. The little maid cut, taken captive by the Assyrians finds herself in a community where she's the only believer. A young girl. And there, in her isolation, she continues to serve God. An example to children. In verse 4, it's pointed out the responsibility of the fathers. And remember, <clears throat> here we're having spirit-filled parents and children on a journey. A journey from earth to heaven. And Paul gives a warning. And he says to fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't make unreasonable, impossible demands. But instead, do it as Jesus would. Because I take that's what it means. Bring them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. How would the Lord discipline? And when the word Lord is used, it's normally a reference to Jesus. So how would Jesus teach and correct? And Paul instructs them. Now what would Jesus want to teach and correct them about? It certainly would include life in this world. But I think it would also stress preparation for the next world. When do we start preparing for the next world? Well, the answer is, as soon as possible. And if the children are not given that, they're being deprived. They have to be brought up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And then there's the next group, slaves and masters. What's the argument here? The, has, the wives and husbands, the argument is the wife pictures the church and the husband pictures Christ. Children and parents, the argument is the fifth commandment. Slaves and masters. The argument is the judgment seat. 
Remember, there's a day coming for both slaves and masters, where each will give an account to Christ. Christian slaves, Christian masters. I mean, we have to remember that in the ancient world, when we think of slavery, and it was a terrible institution, but it was not the slavery of the modern world that was associated with the British Empire and other empires and with America. That's not the slavery that's in mind in the Bible. And we're liable to get it wrong if we think about modern slavery. In the ancient world, a lawyer could be a slave, or a doctor, or a teacher. According to those who claim to know, half the population were slaves. Slaves could have very important roles. They didn't just all have very demeaning activities, but their masters could rely on them, although they still had authority, complete authority over them. But it was a fact of life that um, slaves were limited to that household unless their master decided to get rid of them. And uh, that would always be a kind of fear, wouldn't it? If you're in somebody's household, well, my master's going to get rid of me. And therefore, I must do the best I can to stop that. Is that the kind of motive that Paul wants them to have? Because my master may get rid of me, I therefore must do the best I can. Well, it's not the motive that he gives to them. Instead, he tells them that um, the slaves, they are to serve their master, whether he's good or bad, they are to serve him as they would Christ. He points out there, and we could almost say that the, the service that he describes for these slaves is service that's heart service, and is diligent service, and is expectant service. It's heart service, and it's, at first glance, we might say, well, this is rather somber. He says, Serve your earthly masters with fear and trembling. But the question is, to whom do they show the fear and trembling? When Paul writes to the Philippians, he talks about what God works into us. And he says that we have to work it out with fear and trembling. So I suspect the fear and trembling here is not fear and trembling of the master. It's fear and trembling of God or of Christ. And there they are. And maybe they've got to do the weeding in the master's garden. Who are they doing it for? They're doing it for Christ. They're not doing it to tick the boxes and saying, well, our master's got this list of roles for today. They got to do it as if Christ was standing beside them. And of course, Christ is standing beside them. He's with them. And it comes from the heart. Why do we do all this mundane things? Because we're serving Christ. That's Paul's instruction. It's got to be diligent. You know, it's from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. 
which indicates that whatever this slave is doing, he does it heartily. It's not to be done, well, I'll just rush through this and get it over with. Remember, Jesus is looking on. He sees it all. And he knows what's happening. And it's also, as you mentioned earlier, it's expectant service. Because Paul tells the slave, if you do this the way it should be done, you'll get a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. The implication being, of course, that if the slave doesn't do it, for the right reason. The Christian slave doesn't do it for the right reason. He'll lose out on the reward. And if we apply that to ourselves, it's quite a thought, isn't it, to think that our attitude at work may deprive us of part of the reward. At the great day, Christ will say, I was there. I saw how you did it. And because you did it well, here's a few cities to take his parable. But if, it, if, if it's the other way, I saw how you did it. And you didn't do it well. You've lost your few cities that you could have had. And of course, the reward that Jesus describes is so big. It's not literal. There's nobody going to be in charge of London and New York and Chicago and Delhi and wherever else there is. Because none of these cities will exist in the world to come. But it's a comparison. And just think of the glory that we might lose out on by just failing to remember that whatever we are, we are serving the Lord. There's nothing wrong with with doing something to please Christ. As a matter of fact, it's the main reason for doing anything. To please him. And the fact that he is going to be super abundant in his reward. Well, we know that's going to happen. If we do something for him. Masters, stop in a minute. One thing that Paul says about masters, and he seems to indicate here that they were currently were doing it, because he says to them, stop your threatening. It may have been that some of these people were new converts and they didn't know how to handle their slaves. And Paul says, don't threaten them. Stop it. Because the one you're threatening belongs to Christ. And therefore, Paul says, he's their Lord as well as yours. So don't threaten him. Threats can be small or big. But all threats should be outside the Christian household. So Paul makes requirements of those who are submissive, spirit-filled, and walking to heaven. 
It's seen in our relationships. Husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. Christ sees it. Others may or may not see it, but Christ sees it. And the day is coming when he will reveal what he thought of it. And that's the day that matters. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks that you are interested in everything we're doing and that you give grace for everything we're doing and for all the contacts that we have every day. There's grace for them. And you, by your interest in your people, indicate that you are near, that nothing is done outside your presence. Help us to remember that at one level, we represent Christ and the church. At another level, we indicate what life is like in the presence of God. And at another level, we have to look ahead to the judgment seat. And just remember that it's all going to come up. And it may have a great reward, or it may not. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we live in these relationships, whatever they are, that we'll be helped by you to fulfill them all. Grant it, Lord, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing.